0: All right, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter three, verses one through six. Once you have that, let's stand together once more in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter three, verses one through six. Listen to the word of the Lord. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you and we want to hear from you and your word. Show us Christ. Show us our need. And father, help us to obey in Jesus name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most humbling experiences that my wife and I ever had was uh, trying to find a church as a regular member. Uh, I have been working in churches and ministry since I was 19 years old, working with students and and with with music. And um, when we went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, it was the first time we had to find a church uh, where we were just regular members. And um, it was a lot harder than I thought uh, it was going to be, um, but you know, when you're looking for a church, you have, you have an idea of things that you're looking for in a church, right? You might have a list of things that you expect. I I remember when I was uh, not married, um, I had a list of things that I wanted in a wife. Um, and, um, I think sometimes we look for a church in the same way. We have a list in our heads. We want the church to do this. We want them to have this. We want this to be the case. And, um, you know, you look for certain things naturally. And your decision is going to be based upon how it meets those criteria. Um, and one, one word I've heard from people in the United States is we want a church that's alive. Uh, I've heard it in different ways. We want a church that has the spirit. Or uh, sometimes people come to our church and they say, hey, your church doesn't have the spirit. I'm not sure what they mean by that. Um, I think they're coming from a little bit more a charismatic background, um, but uh, no one wants to be a part of a church that's dead, whatever that might mean. we want life. Uh, life means that things are, are growing and things are good and strong. Um, so but what does it actually mean to be alive? and how can you know if a church is alive? and what do you look for as signs of life? Um, there's a danger today, at least in our context, that the church can have a name or a reputation for being alive when it is actually dead. And this is the problem of the church in Sardis. And this is a problem that we can have for any church. You have a good reputation and you live off of your reputation. You live off of your name uh, for what had happened in the past when, in fact, that is no longer the case. And so this message to the church in Sardis is a warning to not rely just on your name, not to rely just on a good reputation, not to rely simply on the work that the Lord has done in the past. And I want to walk us through this this letter, this message, kind of in the structure that it's, it's given to us. So, first of all, uh, I want you to notice the identity of the risen Christ, So notice the identity of the risen Christ. Notice how these messages begin. It addresses the problem or the danger, but it shows them a picture of the risen Christ that they need because of their particular problem. So write to the angel, the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. When a church is tempted to gain a name or reputation apart from the gospel, what they need to see is the risen Christ. That, I mean, that's what we all need. We, we need to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is how Revelation begins. Um, the, the seven spirits of God. Remember, seven is a, a, a number of completion and wholeness. Um, this represents the spirit who gives life. You know, Jesus is uh, the one who has the seven spirits. He, he has the fullness of the spirit. And he gives the fullness of the spirit to his people. And so clearly that's what they need. This church. They think they're alive but they're dead. And Jesus is the giver of life. He's the one who gives the spirit. Who gives life. And then the stars are uh, the seven messengers. That are in his right hand. This is what we see in Revelation 1.20. Um, here we see The sovereignty. Um, and the, the sovereignty of the king and the word that gives life that is given to the messengers. So uh, the stars are the messengers right to the angel of the church in Sardis. So Jesus speaks to each of these messengers, this message that gives life. He gives them this word based upon the authority of who he is. This is exactly what they need because they're resting on their reputation. And so why does the church in Sardis need to see this Christ? I think that's a helpful question. Um, I don't know how much you know about the church in Sardis, but uh, in this time, Sardis was actually known for its wealth and uh, for its self-confidence. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to me when I come over here is, is just the glamour of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, right? There's a lot of wealth. And people come from all over the world to just see it, right? They want to see the birds. Uh, how, how do you say it? the birds' Khalifa? right? They they want to see that. I mean, uh, Westerners come here just to take a, a just an understanding of this wealth, as I understand it. Massive buildings where people might not be in them at all, right? Because they're they're just building. And as you see this, uh, you know. You do the humanly impossible, right? You build islands to build buildings on. And it actually looks very magnificent. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that. But when you come here, you are hit in the face with the wealth and the magnitude of what money can buy and do. Imagine, you know, what that does to a culture, what that does to a people, Right, It it makes you think you can accomplish anything. You're invincible. Sardis was known for its wealth, and that wealth produces self-confidence in them. It was situated on top of a hill or cliffs that made the city very easy to defend. And so they were not only confident in their wealth, they were confident in the fact that no one can stand against us. No one can come and attack us. But (laughs) twice... The city fell because of their self-confidence once in the year 549 B.C. and again in the year 218 B.C. Finally, in the year A.D. 17, a great earthquake destroyed Sardis and put it in great debt. So imagine that setting over and over again. Destruction came to Sardis, much like a thief comes in the middle of the night. And the real riches to rags it was a real riches to rags story they had wealth self-confidence and god humbled them in their own history sardis had a name it had a history it had a reputation for once being this glamorous glorious place and now it was not they were dead Now, if we're to fight the temptation to to gain a name and reputation for being alive apart from Christ and his gospel, then we too need to see the risen Christ. And that that is a danger. And I don't know if that's a danger here, but it really is a danger in the United States where you can have a church that can build itself on programs, whether it's children's ministry, it can build itself on music, it can build itself on an individual personality of a pastor and One of the dangers that we see in the West and specifically in our context is that you can actually build a church. I'd say put that within quotes. That's not built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this is not a new problem, is it? Paul writes to the Corinthians warning them of the same problem and that Jesus was going to come and judge. And and those ministers who ministered on the foundation of Jesus Christ with wood, hay and stubble their work would be consumed. So again, this is a perpetual danger that we all face. And and brother pastors, those of you who are here, um, I understand just from my conversations with you that the work is hard here, but it is much better to be in hard work, trusting in the Lord to build His church than for us to try to build a gathering of people in our own strength and power, through our ingenuity and through our charisma or whatever else it might be. So what we need to remember is the risen Christ. He is sovereign over the churches and Jesus is sovereign over your church as well. He is the one who has the seven spirits of God, who gives a spirit that gives life. He is the one who holds the messengers in his hand. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. And he is a giver of life because he has life in himself. And apart from the risen Christ, there is no life. And he gives life by his word. This is, I think, what we're most tempted in, in, in our context in the United States. When Jesus was with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They all had good things to say about Jesus, one of the prophets. And then Jesus turned to his own disciples and he said, but who do you say that I am? In other words, he was asking in the plural, who do you 12 say that I am? And Jesus speaking on behalf of the 12 said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And so Jesus says he's going to build his church on the rock of the apostles, the 12 apostles. He's going to build his rock, his church on the rock of the 12 apostles. They are the foundation of the church because they're the ones that received the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Another way we can say it is this way. Jesus is building his church on the foundation of the gospel. He's building his church on the proclamation of the good news that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so, brother pastors, I appeal to you, we cannot build the church on anything else other than the word that gives life. It is the word by which Jesus created all things. He is the word through whom all things were created. It is by the word of his power, Hebrews tells us that Jesus sustained all things. It is in the same way that Jesus went to Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. That resurrection of that dead body is a picture of regeneration or the new birth. By this word implanted in us, the Spirit attends that word and gives life to those who are spiritually dead and gives them new life. And so we can't build the church on anything other than this word that is that gives life uh, by the spirit that gives life as well by the spirit that is life. And so whenever we're tempted to build our church on anything other than the word of life, the word of the living God, the word of Jesus Christ, then we need to remember this picture of the glorious risen Christ This is the identity of the risen Christ. He is the giver of life. But secondly, notice the assessment of the risen Christ. Here in the assessment, what we have is that they're merely nominal Christians. They're Christians in name only. Again, look at verse 1. That says the one who has the seven spirits of God and seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation or literally a name. You have a name for being alive, but you are dead. I mean, this is a very strong indictment, isn't it? What's interesting about this message to this church is that there is no commendation. There's only condemnation. So there's no, Jesus offers no good words uh, to them. They have a name for being alive but they're dead this is the problem here i don't know i don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this um maybe there was a place that you grew up going and you have these grandiose memories of it and then you go back and you wonder what happened to that place when i was dating my wife um uh, we both went to the university of florida and when i was a, a young man My father took me to this place in Lake Wells, Florida, called Spook Hill. And you take your car and you drive it to a line. And you put the car in neutral. And supposedly, the spirits of the Indians, who were um, not treated well, take your car and they push it up the hill. As a kid, I remember being fascinated by that. It's actually an optical illusion. You look like you're at the bottom of the hill, but but you actually are a place where the car still goes up. It's an optical illusion. It's not real, just so there are no questions. I took my wife because I wanted to—she was my girlfriend—I wanted to impress her. And so I took the car, I put it in neutral, and the car just scooted a few feet. And she looks at me and she says, is that it? My wife is utterly unimpressed with me. But, but I remember as a kid, uh, I remember uh, as an adult going to Disney World, and we grew up going to Disney World, and we walked the entire park in about one hour, and I thought to myself, is this it? You know, we have these grandiose memories looking back of, of what we experienced. You know, we might call it nostalgia. And then we realize that, wow, that's nothing like a, I remembered it. This is part of what's going on here. The church in Sardis is depending on what they used to be. You know, they're nostalgic for the name they used to have, and they're still living off their old name. But Jesus says, look, you're dead. You're not alive. You you had a reputation for being alive, but you're no longer alive. You are dead. Why might a church gain a reputation for being alive? Uh, one, one day I did an experiment. I just asked on social media, why might a church be uh, have a reputation for being alive? Th- these are some of the answers that I received. Numbers. Uh, some people might think a church is really alive because it's really big. That church must be alive because they have a lot of people going there, right? Um, activity. Some people might think a church is alive because they have a lot of programs and they're always doing something. They have something every night of the week. So activity might lend people to think that a church has, uh, is alive. Influence. Some people might think, this, why well, this church is really influential with the government or they're really influential in the culture. Um, or uh, this is common in the United States because of the music. Uh, in our town, in Austin, it's a music town. It's the live music capital of the world. And on any given Friday or Saturday night, you can go coffee shop out somewhere and there are musicians playing just everywhere, you know. And so we're a very musically oriented city and and some people might go to a church and the band might be great, the musicians might be incredible, and you might think, wow, they must be alive because their music is really good. Um, and, And you can just think about different reasons why a church might gain reputation for being alive. Here's a question that I want you to consider. If someone were to ask you, is your church alive? How would you respond to that question? How would you describe a church that is alive? Now, we need to be careful when we assess or evaluate churches in worldly ways. The church in Sardis had a name, a reputation for being alive, but was dead. Dead. And we may not know exactly why the church in Sardis had a reputation or name for being alive. But Jesus charge to them gives us some clues. So here's the third thing that I want you to see. Number one, the identity of the risen Christ. He's the giver of life. Number two, the assessment of the risen Christ. They're Christians in name only. Number three, the charge of the risen Christ. Here we have a string of imperatives or commands that give us some clues in verses two through three. So he says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you're not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. So let's just take these commands one at a time and just think through them because I think they give us clues as to what Jesus is getting at. First of all, he says in, in verse 2, wake up. Wake up. Right? Be alert. That's basically saying wake up. <clears throat> Part of what he's saying is be constantly on the alert. Well, so what, what might this say about the church in Sardis? You might say they were complacent That they weren't alert, that maybe they dropped their guard. In what ways might we need to hear this command to be alert, to be alert about what's going on around us? In what ways have we as a church maybe fallen asleep and be told to wake up? Have we fallen asleep to the distinct message of the gospel? Have we grown so accustomed to the glorious gospel that we just assume it? Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson has often said, the first generation has the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, and by the third generation, the gospel is lost. You know, it's kind of this idea from Joshua. You know, the generation that walked with Moses and Joshua, they saw the works of God, they understood the works of God, The second generation from Joshua continued in the ways, but by the third generation it was all lost. And then Judges comes on. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. I think sometimes we as Christians, we tend to forget how glorious the gospel is. And we need to remind ourselves of this glorious good news of the gospel. And it is what gives life, isn't it? It is believing this gospel By which we have life. I wonder if maybe we are in danger of falling asleep to the demands of the gospel. This is the gospel that we receive by God's grace. It is free to all who would believe and repent. But there are demands to this gospel, and primarily by demands, I mean holiness. If we are in fact born again, we will bear fruit of being born again, the fruit of repentance. Right? The fruit of light, which consists in everything that is right, good, and true, Paul says in Ephesians. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruit of lips, the writer of Hebrews says, a sacrifice of praise to God. And of course, the fruit of repentance. that John the Baptist tells us when he is baptizing and Pharisees come up to him and he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, sometimes we can get lazy in the fact that we are born again, we're Christians, and we don't have to pursue holiness. wonder if we maybe have fallen asleep to the urgency of the gospel. What I mean by that is specifically evangelism and missions. Um, I know this is probably the case in, in our context. You know, we get so busy in life, we fail to understand the urgency. When we consider that there are people that are spiritually dead all around us and Jesus the giver of life offers life to all who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I have to pray myself for myself God break my heart for unbelieving people on, on Saturday I pray for <clears throat> unbelieving people specifically by name but but one of the prayer requests that I have on Saturdays is, is just to remind myself Lord give me a heart for unbelieving people you know make me the kind of pastor that is constantly sharing the gospel so that our people would have an example and and there's are just some ways that that we become lazy we become complacent in the faith we become comfortable because we have the gospel we have the hope of eternal life and um, and it's e- even dangerous for us to to just sit back so Jesus says, wake up, be alert. But secondly, he says, strengthen what is about to die here. He says, or here strengthen what remains, which is about to die. What does this tell us? Well, there's hope here, right? Remember, Jesus is patient with his churches and there's hope here. He says, strengthen that which is about to die. So guess what that means? It's not dead yet (laughs) so there's encouragement here it is not dead yet what are they to strengthen well they're to strengthen their works their works are not complete before god this is the ground or the reason be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die for that for grounds or gives the reason for i have not found your works complete before my god So their works, whatever these works are, are incomplete. It's like they started, but in their complacency, they didn't finish them. The fruit here is not complete. What is this work? Well, let's look at um, let's look at uh, chapter two, verse 19. This might give us a clue. In verse 19 of chapter 2, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, I know your works. Maybe this could give us some clue. Your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. And so the church in Thyatira was known for their works and their works were commendable before God. Their problem is that they refused to disciplined Jezebel, and so they allowed false doctrine to enter into their, into their church. So those are works that please Christ. And what we need to think about is you know, what about our works? Are we, are we faithful to what the Lord has set us aside? These works that we were predestined to do and to accomplish. What about love? Are we completing the work of love? This is how Jesus begins these messages, warning the Ephesians that they had abandoned love. And because they had abandoned the work of love, He has that against them. But what about us? Um, Are we growing in love? Love for God and love for others. And again, if you read the message to the church in Ephesus, you realize that they're connected. We love others... Because he first loved us, right? God is love because God is love. We then love others. In fact, John is able to say if we don't love others, that means we don't love God, right? I, I used to wonder why Paul summarized the whole law in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself, until I realized, well, the reason he says the whole law can be summarized. Love your neighbor as yourself, even though the law has two tables Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbors yourself. The reason he could summarize it with love your neighbors yourself is because you cannot love your neighbors yourself if you don't love God. And so our love for others is an indication of our love for God. Our love for others flows from a love for God. Paul Tripp in his book, Uh, What Did You Expect on Marriage, which now I think is just simply called marriage, defines love in the shape of the cross what he calls cruciform love. Jesus defines what love is for us. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. So it is willing, it is sacrificial for the good of another, whether or not they deserve it. Right, we did not deserve Jesus' love for us on the cross. So love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another, whether or not they deserve it and whether or not they return it and we have to really assess our lives and our love in that way do do we love others in that kind of way are we willing to sacrifice for the good of others when they don't deserve it like our enemies for example Jesus says love your enemies are we willing to sacrifice and deny ourselves for others whether or not they return it. You see, oftentimes our love is conditional, isn't it? And so we need to really think through, you know, uh, our church is really loving, and, and I could see where we could get into danger. We just assume we're loving, and then we could just go through the motions and no longer be loving. And so we have to constantly think about that. Um, what about faith, the work of faith? We should grow in our faith and trust of God. What about service? We should grow in our service of the church, service of one another, serving in the church. Where, where are you serving in the church? Right? These are the works that I'm getting from Revelation two nineteen that I think could give us some clue. And then patient endurance. How can we strengthen the works before God? Our works before God. Can you think of tangible ways that you can grow in love? Um, For example, I think Christian hospitality is is one way that we can grow in loving one another, getting to know one another. Um, There are different ways, but but think about some ways. Uh, Your participation in the church, uh, discipling other believers every Christian can disciple other Christians and it's just helping people follow Jesus. These are some ways that we can grow in our love for one another and even in our service uh, for one another. And then in our faith, I think we can encourage one another in faith and in the faith. I know that when we suffer, the great temptation is to doubt God's goodness or to doubt God's sovereignty or to doubt God's love or to doubt God's wisdom it's in those times that we grieve with those who grieve we walk along with one another we sometimes just sit the ministry of presence is a powerful ministry and sometimes we sit and then we offer words of encouragement we remind our brothers and sisters who are suffering of the scriptures and of the promises of God in the midst of their suffering, and we walk with them in the midst of their suffering. And then patient endurance. Again, we we're to encourage one another, exhort one another, um, brother pastors. This is part of your ministry: is to encourage the brothers, to exhort the brothers, to remind them the truth of who Jesus is. And, and and those of you who are church members to pray for one another, to meet together, to encourage one another, to talk about sin, to, to allow the church to be a place where we can be honest with one another and we confess our sins to one another and we remind one another of the forgiveness that is in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can help one another endure, strengthen what is about to die. Thirdly, he says, remember what you have received and heard and obey. Okay. Uh, in verse three, remember then what you have received and heard and keep it. that word keep it is is uh, the same word from from the great Commission. Teach him to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Or teach him to keep uh, everything Jesus has commanded. So what had they received and heard? well they've received the gospel isn't it that 's the revelation of God about Jesus as the Christ. This is what we've all received Jesus. Uh, To the corinthians writing he says i've i've only given to you what i first received that which is of first Importance and so we have received the gospel we have received the good news And this is the foundation of the church just as i was saying before the foundation of the church is not feelings Not activity not music not um, a, uh, uh, A magnetic personality of a preacher the foundation of the church is the gospel of jesus christ that's what we have received And because Jesus is a source of life, is the one who gives life by His Spirit and His Word, this is the foundation of the church that we have received, and we must build the church on. The church in Sardis seems to be neglecting or not obeying or keeping the gospel. So remember what I mentioned uh, about Dr. Carson. Let me give you the direct quote from Dr. Carson. He says, In a fair bit of Western evangelicalism, There is a worrying tendency to focus on the periphery. He says, my colleague, Dr. Paul Hebert springs from Mennonite stock and analyzes his heritage in a fashion that he himself would acknowledge is something of a simplistic caricature, but a useful one. Nonetheless, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic and political entailments the next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. In other words, the second generation assumed the gospel, but focused on the entailments. The following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything, political party, homeschooling, social gospel, absence, whatever, whatever it might be. They identified with the entailments This is how you establish a a Christian culture without Christ. You basically live out the entailments of the gospel and the gospel itself is denied. You you know, you can have a conservative culture that is not Christian. And so we have to be careful of that. He says, assuming this sort of scheme for evangelicalism, one suspects that large swaths of the movement are lodged in the second step with some drifting toward the third. Now, this was some time ago. I think what we're seeing in the United States now is this drifting toward the third. A lot of people that are resting on the name Christian, but they're just living for the entailments, the conservative politics, so on and so forth, in the United States. Again, that's that's our culture, not yours. But this is one of the concerns that I have for evangelicals. Um, as it's fleshed out particularly in the political realm that we forget the gospel and just focus on the entailments or implications of the gospel so we can ask the question this way what is it that excites you? what is it that excites you about Christianity? think about that for just a moment is it politics is it social justice? Is it a certain entailment? Are we in danger of assuming the gospel and just touting entailments? Or worse, have we lost the gospel and just preaching entailments? Dr. Carson goes on to suggest that today there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another. Abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination for or against economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version um, in countries, have a full agenda of the urgent peripheral demands. Not for a moment am I suggesting we should not think about such matters or throw our way behind some of them. But when such matters devote most of our time and passion Each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? The danger is that we can have a reputation for being a Christian and being alive, but really what we're doing is just pursuing the entailments of the gospel and not the gospel itself and definitely not the Christ of the gospel. So we have to remember what we have heard, what we have received, and obey it. It. Do you marvel at the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, are you overwhelmed that the God of all creation, who did not have to save anybody, right? You understand that. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God would be perfectly just if he would have just let them continue in their sinfulness. And then judge humanity at a certain point later on. He would have been perfectly just if he condemned Adam and Eve to hell for all eternity. And there are only two people in hell forever and ever and ever. And he did nothing else. He would have been perfectly just. But God decided to save. He chose to save. And by choosing to save, he had to save in a specific way. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. The Son of God had to take on our humanity. He had to become like us in order to save us because it was a man that put us in this situation of condemnation. Because sin came through the one man, salvation and righteousness had to come through the other man. And so when God chose to save, He had to save in this way because He saves not angels, but He saves the children and offspring of Abraham. And when you think everything that God has done to bring about history, the patience of God to bring about his son, Israel, for 400 years before they begin to see the promises and all the patience of God with Israel to their divided kingdom and eventually they're all in exile to then bringing His Son at at the fullness of time, at just the right time in the unfolding history. When you think about everything that God has done to prepare for our salvation and to bring us to Himself, and that we, because of the inheritance of Adam's sin in us, we don't deserve salvation. And we don't want salvation. But God, by sending His Son, caused us to love Him and drew us to Himself. And saved us through the preaching of this foolish message about this God who became a man and who lived and conquered through death instead of military might. That is an overwhelming gospel, isn't it? To think that God did that in order to bring us to Himself. Remember what you've heard. Remember what you have received and obey it. Keep it. That's what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis. So, friends, love the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. Share the gospel. Apply the gospel. And always keep the main thing the main thing. And if you don't keep the main thing, the main thing, Jesus says, repent. Remember, then, what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If we ever neglect or lose or forget or assume the gospel, we need to repent. We need to turn away from our neglect and we need to turn back to this good news and to the one who gives this good news. What might repentance look like? The word repentance literally means a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. Well, it depends on what you've the gospel with, doesn't it? If you replace the gospel with something else and you need to turn away from that and then turn back to Christ. You need to change your mind about the gospel you need to embrace it not to replace it or neglect it now what happens if you don't repent well here we see fourthly the threat of the risen christ in verse three if you are not alert i will come like a thief and you have no idea what hour i will come to you so here's a picture that I want you to have in your mind the Christians in Sardis are asleep Jesus says if you don't wake up I'm gonna come in the middle of the night at a time when you don't know it's a pretty vivid picture isn't it this will be the surprise visit of the judge sometimes judgment is immediate sometimes judgment takes time but now or later Judgment will come. But again, notice the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment is not the final word. Here we see, fifthly, the promise of the risen Christ in verses 4 through 6. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never erase His name from the book of life, but will acknowledge His name before my Father and before His angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's really interesting to play on words here, isn't it? They have a name for being alive, but they're dead. But those who repent and are faithful, what happens to them? Their name will not be erased from the book of life. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Those names who do not defile themselves will walk with Jesus in white because they're worthy. They don't make themselves worthy, they're classified as worthy because they have received and heard and kept what was given to them, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all who conquer will be clothed in white. One of the most beautiful images that I have in my mind is the image of Ephesians chapter 5. I know I'm old, but I love musicals. And one of my favorite musicals is My Fair Lady. And in My Fair Lady, Professor Higgins is very arrogant, and he takes a bet, and he bets that he can take any woman off the streets of London and present her as royalty by the time he's done with her, with her training. And so he takes, (laughs) he takes this woman who doesn't know how to act, doesn't know how to talk, doesn't know how to dress, doesn't know how to pronounce words. And My Fair Lady is this amazing story of this transformation of this woman. And it ends at a royal ball where she is passed off as a royal princess. And to me, that is a picture of the gospel. Jesus doesn't take the pretty bride. He doesn't choose the, the one who seems worthy to us. What Jesus does is he takes us who are unworthy, who don't deserve it, who don't want it. And he says, by his love, he will win us. And he doesn't say, clean yourself up. And then you put on a white wedding dress. What he does is he says, you come to me as you are. And by my word, I will sanctify you. And when I'm done with you, I will give you a white wedding dress to wear on a wedding day. See, Jesus by His love transforms us. This willing self-sacrifice for our good, even though we didn't deserve it, and even though we didn't return it. And this is the good news of the Gospel, that Jesus transforms the unworthy, the lowly, the idolater, the adulterer, and He sanctifies us. And then He gives us a white wedding dress for that wedding day. This is a glorious good news. All who conquer will be clothed in white. And Jesus will not erase their name from the book of life. And this doesn't mean that somehow you can lose your salvation. This is this is language to help us to understand the definite assurance we have in Christ. And I mean, this is fascinating. And Jesus will declare their name before the Father and his angels. Isn't that fascinating? They have a name. They think they're alive, but they're in fact dead. But for all who conquer, all who, who endure in the gospel, all who remain in the gospel, all who believe the gospel, all who turn away when, when they have not obeyed or kept the gospel, Jesus will never erase their name from the book of life. And He will acknowledge His name before my Father and before His angel, the angels. So, we close. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 6. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. A church can have a good name in the community for a variety of reasons. And it's not necessarily bad to have a good reputation in the community. For the right things. But why should a church be known in the community? Not for its size. Not for its engagement in the culture or its impact in the community not for its music style not for anything else but simply for our love of christ our love for others because it flows from our understanding and reception of the gospel when the all-glorious risen christ assesses our churches what will he say I hope that he can say that we have remained alert, that we're awake and that we have obeyed what we have heard and received the gospel and that our entire life together is rooted in this gospel. And together we are bearing the fruit of this gospel. All who conquer in this way will not be denied by King Jesus and will be clothed in white garments. Praise be to the risen Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had. Father, help us to be alert. Father, if some of us have been asleep, if we have been complacent, if we have been resting on past works, we ask that you would forgive us. Expose that to us so that we may repent and return. Return to you. Father, would you increase our love for Christ? Would you cause us to cherish this gospel? Father, would you cause us to be faithful? And would you produce the fruits of your gospel in our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.